everybody. Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall. Thanks for joining me today on today's episode. Renew.org's editorial director and the director of cultural engagement, Daniel McCoy and Renee Sproles, have teamed up to start a new series that's airing inside the Discipleship.org Collective on Thursdays, and it's been awesome so far. Today's episode, they're interviewing Dr. Orpheus Hayward about how we should approach the Bible. Orpheus, which is actually probably my favorite name ever now, is the senior minister of Renaissance Church of Christ. He's an awesome dude and a powerful speaker. You're going to really enjoy this episode. So let's jump into this clip from Theology Thursday. Here we go. Welcome to Theology Thursdays. I'm Renee Sproles, and this is my co-host, Daniel, Daniel McCoy. McCoy. How's hey. it going? Hey, Daniel. Hey. Good to be with you. We're so we're so glad you're joining us today. We're talking about one of my favorite topics, God's reliable word. And to help us with this topic, we have a great, great resource. Um, Orpheus Hayward. Dr. Orpheus Hayward, um, sat down with Daniel to discuss how we should approach the Bible. And he is a senior minister of the Renaissance Church of Christ, and he is a dynamic and scripturally sound gospel preacher. You're gonna love his presentation. It's um, really easy to listen to. He's received his Master of Arts in Theology, a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies, and a doctorate degree in Theological Exegesis. And he is a constant student of the Bible. And don't let that intimidate you because he's going to make this really accessible. I love this conversation. Yeah. What he does so well is he, as a preacher, he's able to help his congregation to like learn how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible as he's preaching. So he'll kind of, you know, yeah. show some of the tools and model that for his congregation. I just love it. And he talks about how he does that here uh, in this conversation. Yeah, so I want us to get right to it. It's a great conversation, and I want us to have some time to um, talk about it when it's done, and we welcome your questions. If you have some that come up um, as we're watching this, just put them in the chat, and we'll see if we can address those. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Okay, so first question. Alistair McGrath wrote Christianity's Dangerous Idea, in which he explains that if you give everybody their own Bible in their own language, you will have a bazillion different interpretations, with everybody having their own Bible and their own social media account, blog, podcast, etc. There's a risk that people will invent and teach some very unbiblical interpretations. So can you give us two or three examples of when you heard somebody's interpretation of a Bible passage and it made you say, what in the world? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I can just think of numerous cases, and some of those cases may be my early, my early preaching experience, where after looking back and having uh, uh, looking retrospectively, you start to realize, man, I really took some scriptures out of context. Um, but it's, it's interesting that um, in the name of theology and doctrine, sometimes our zeal gets ahead of our hermeneutical understanding. And I think when we want to be orthodox or when we want to ensure that we're theologically correct, sometimes we're more loyal to a particular religious tradition as opposed to a proper interpretation of scripture. One example would be First um, Corinthians 14, verse number 40. It's a really common passage that I've heard 
within the context of even Churches of Christ, where it says, let all things be done decently and in order. And that passage has been used for a great variety of things, from you shouldn't clap in church, to uh, how women are dressed in church, to um, you know how what, what should be the order of worship, to you can't sing and do the Lord's Supper at the same time. Uh, so there's just been a, numerous ways that that passage has been used um, to suggest various uh, positions. And every position I've heard on that passage has been about trying to protect the practice as opposed to truly treating what the Apostle Paul was treating in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. So um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, when he says that all things be done decently and in order, uh, contextually, it was really dealing with the management of spiritual gifts. And it was dealing with the fact that you had prophets and tongue speakers who were uh, not doing things in a way that would be edifying in which the church could understand. And so you will find that various tongue speakers were speaking simultaneously where Paul had to implement a method of speaking one at a time and let one interpret. And same thing with the prophets. And so he culminates that chapter with let all things be done decently and in order. And if you connected it to verse 39, the previous passage, he said, I would desire that you spoke in tongues and prophesy, but let all things be done decently and in order. So that passage is very much relative to the management of the spiritual gifts that were being used within the context of the Corinthian church. We take that passage and use it for everything we want to use it for, and we just kind of use it as a, a double-edged sword. We just cut people coming and going without truly understanding what Paul was dealing with in that context. So that would be one example um, that I could think of. Um, and then, of course, there's other examples. Uh, God is not worshipped with man's hands in Acts chapter 17, and it is used to suggest clapping is a sin. Um, and I've heard that used many times where the context there, of course, they were making idols. Um, and of course, Paul addresses that practice and, um, uh, and helps them to understand who God truly is and that he is not a God that needs you to make him or create him. And in that context, he's far from dealing with clapping. Um, but it has been used to suggest clapping is a sin. Um, and I could just think of numerous other passages, but um, I, those are two moments when I said to myself, oh my God, that is atrocious, uh, how that passage is being used. And, uh, and just think of how many people we send to hell over these bad interpretations. So what happens is that here's a bunch of people we put in error and the Apostle Paul has no clue what we're talking about. Mm. And so it can be dangerous. I think clapping is only a sin if it's like really off rhythm. Other than that, I think it should be okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, if it's off rhythm, it is definitely anathema. We need to definitely stop doing it. <laughs> so a lot of people see spirituality as a matter of opinion. So they might say, well, this is how I read the Bible, and I find it to be an insp inspiring way of reading it. If I've got my own inspirational feelings from reading the Bible my own way, then does it really matter what the original author's meant to say? Isn't it enough just to figure out what it means to me? Mm. What would you say to that? You know, that's a common approach that really was birthed in about the 1800s. It's called the reader response method. And the reader response method took the position that in the absence of the author, and since we do not have access to the author, we truly cannot ask the author what is meant, and therefore we are to ascertain what it means to us. And so therefore that method was called reader response. 
the problem with that is um, God in, uh, God placed meaning in scripture. And we need to be very careful that if we take the position we're asking, what does it mean to us? Then we negate the instructive and guidance uh, methodology of God, that God wants us to be guided by his wisdom. And to that end, he gives us scripture. And scripture is not to be privately uh, interpreted from the perspective that I can come up with what it means to me. I need to ask, what is God trying to communicate to me? What is God trying to say to me? What is the instructive mechanism involved here? For instance, uh, 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished. Well, if, I, if, I'm, if it's left up to me to come up with what it means, where's the rebuke? Where's the correction? Uh, mm -hmm. Where's the instruction in righteousness? It then becomes subjective, which means I can then bend scripture to my will as opposed to making my will bend to scripture. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a dangerous process when I leave with the notion that I can give scripture meaning or another way of saying that is what does it mean to me? So I think we get a little bit subjective when we take that perspective and we negate the wisdom of God in that. And we negate that God is the revealer of scripture to which he wants to communicate meaning to us. So I think the reader response philosophy is very dangerous and gives birth to a, a plethora of different religious positions that are predicated on what people want and what people feel as opposed to what did God actually communicate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Uh, so why is it important to take the time to correctly handle the word of truth? What is at stake? I think what is at stake when we, uh, when we approach the question of handling scripture accurately, What's at stake is whether or not we're going to convolute the will of God. I think what is at stake is whether or not we want to bend to the will of God. I think what is at stake is our soul. I think what is at stake is our salvation. And what I mean by that is if God is, has taken the posture to invite me into his wisdom, that I might have right standing with him through the gospel and through transformative living. Um, the way, the only way I'm going to do that is to handle this word accurately. One of the worst things that happens during the political season is um, political ads, political commercials, because what they typically do is take a soundbite of what a person said, and they build a whole commercial out of one sentence. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that no one likes to be taken out of context. And if we don't like to be taken out of context, I'm pretty sure God doesn't want to be taken out of mm -hmm. context either. And so what happens is sometimes we soundbite God's word. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we walk away with a convoluted message. We get a skewed view of his will because we have not taken the time to understand him contextually. So ultimately what's at stake is understanding God. What's at stake is understanding his will. What's at stake is understanding his way. And if we ignore accurately handling the word of truth, then we end up in a space where we disconnect from what is at the heart of God. Um, I would also say it's interesting that in 2 Timothy 2.15, the apostle Paul is writing to his son, Timothy, who is functioning as an evangelist. Who better to make sure that he handles the word accurately than one who mounts the pulpit and preaches the word of God? 
Um, those of us who are preachers truly need to be dedicated to understanding the process of rightly handling the word because we're responsible for feeding people the word of God. And what we don't want to do is take a moment to mount the sacred desk, as we call it, the pulpit, and just feed people our word rather than God's. And so we need to be really careful about that. So I think that's what's at stake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's an example of taking scripture out of context in a way that convolutes the message? Yeah, um, I think uh, one way we could take scripture out of context and convolute the message, if I was to think of it soteriologically in reference to salvation, um, you will find that various religious groups put a different emphasis on different aspects of the salvation process. And as a result, sometimes they isolate one idea from the rest of the corpus of scripture. For instance, if a, if a person comes to Ephesians chapter two and verse eight, and it says you're saved by grace through faith, and they walk away with the perspective that you are saved um, on the basis of faith alone, um, it, it can lead a person to maybe a faulty understanding, depending on what they understand to be faith alone. Um, or they may read another scripture where it says baptism does also now save us. And they come to the position that water washes away sins. Well, we need to be careful um, because we want to know exactly what these scriptures indicate. While baptism is certainly essential and a a, a necessary part, we don't want to put power in water. So we need to make sure that we are properly understanding these words, these concepts, so that we um, are not taking these scriptures out of context to the detriment of understanding salvation. Or we may read a phrase like Jesus Christ is the son of man. And we take that to mean, well, Jesus was only a human being. Well, be careful. <laughs> we, we don't want to isolate that from the corpus of scripture mm-hmm. and, um, and get to a space where we misunderstand who is Christ. So I think there are examples like that where people read scripture, isolate the text, divorce it from its canonical context and its immediate context, and give it a meaning it never had. I'm a firm believer that you can never make scripture mean what it never meant. And so it's very important that we recognize scripture can never mean what it never meant. And we have to be careful about how we approach it. So um, I think salvation can be at stake uh, when we uh, misapply scripture. I think Christian living can be at stake when we misapply scripture. Sometimes, let's say you go to scripture that says, work out your own salvation. Uh, with fear and trembling and then we take the position salvation has to be earned we have to earn our salvation well now we we build a works oriented salvation based on a passage not understanding what paul meant by work out your salvation so now you come with a meritorious perspective of salvation that would be erroneous to scripture so i think those are examples where we need to be very careful Mm, that's good that's good. So a lot of people are, are going to hear the words Bible interpretation and they might get a little nervous. Like, you know, it's hard enough just to read the Bible sometimes. You mean I have to figure out the correct interpretation too? Uh-huh, yeah. So in order to help a person who's intimidated by the, the idea of Bible interpretation, can you maybe share some ways that we use interpretation every day? Sure, sure. Uh, well, we use interpretation with text messages, emails, uh, newspapers, um, you name it. Um, we we are already experts in interpretation. I teach people all the time when I, I teach hermeneutics or expository preaching that understanding the notion of interpretation is not foreign to anyone. Actually, each one of us know a couple of things. One, 
if you're going to send me a text message, I better read it in context so that I don't take your text message out of context because text does not have tone. So we have to make sure when we read text, we read it in a context so that we make sure we don't misapply it. Same thing with a newspaper. I don't read the editorials the same way I read the comments. It's all in the same newspaper, but it's different genres. So we understand that there are various ways to read different kinds of literature. We don't read poems the same way we read a novel. We understand we're reading a different kind of literature. So we already understand that it's important to interpret properly. We already know that if we read an email or something like that, if there's a word we don't understand, we get a dictionary and we look it up because we want to make sure we understand exactly what is meant when something is stated. Everybody I know is an expert in interpretation. We only lose that expertise when we don't want to bring it to the Bible. Mm. And so we have this very interesting thing where we want to treat the Bible as uh, in a way that is not common to any other literature. While it is a book that is from God, it certainly is inspired. It is, in fact, literature. So mm. we need to bring our rules of literature to reading the Bible, and we would find that we would ascertain meaning much better. So I, I believe that um, in just looking at life, we understand interpretation quite well. Mm. So we use interpretation every day, um, but even though we do use it every day, we, it sounds like we, we need to be honest about the, you know, there is a, quite a distance between us and the world of the Bible. And yes. a lot of people, they kind of jump straight from reading a Bible verse to saying, okay, what does this mean in my life? So as people read right. the Bible, what are some questions that they should ask before they get to, okay, what does this mean in my life? Sure. I think when people read scripture, I think the questions they need to ask are, number one, what is um, their context? Now, context is a loaded word. When I say context, I mean, what's the surrounding information? But I also mean, what is the cultural context? What is the historical context? What is the linguistic context? Some questions we should ask as we read scripture is, do I understand the situation of the text? Um, do I understand the reason the author is writing? Um, am I clear about the language that's being used? Is he using an expression that's not common to my vernacular that maybe I need to look into? For instance, uh, when you read the book of Psalms and David uses these very hyperbolic expressions like make me white as snow or make my bones to rejoice. Well, I, I'm pretty clear that bones don't rejoice, so he must mean something other than uh, make his bones rejoice. What kind of language is being used here? I need to ask the question, what is the type of literature I'm reading? Is this a letter? Is this prophetic? Is this historical narrative? Is this apocalyptic? What kind of language am I reading? So that I can make sure as I read it, I'm not going to take the language out of context. So one of the things we need to be aware of, there's certain gaps we need to close as it relates to interpreting the Bible. There is a historical gap. Um, there is a time gap. And when I say historical gap, they lived in a completely different time than we live. When I say there is a language gap, I'm saying that um, the Bible was written originally in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Koine Greek. These are not languages that we are always readily familiar with. So we need to be mindful of that. We also know when you translate from one language to another, there are some things that can be lost in translation that we need to be mindful of. 
So these are some basic gaps we need to close. Historical gaps, language gaps, cultural gaps. Uh, what is the culture? What does it mean to salute one another with a holy kiss? What is a holy kiss really all about? Is this some kind of malignant behavior I need to know about? Or is this common to their culture? So it's important for us to recognize what are the cultural gaps that make us different. Um, so these are gaps we need to close. By the way, these are gaps we typically don't have to close in our day and time because we're already familiar with the culture, the language, the historical situation we're in. These are things that are familiar to us. So in the Bible world, we will be unfamiliar and we need to make sure we're closing those gaps. So th those are some questions we need to ask that I think are important to the interpretive process. Now, you used the word genre earlier. Um, what what are the major what, what is a genre first of all then what are the major genres in scripture would you say i would say that um genre by definition just means a kind of literature um so when we use that word we're really saying um what is the style of writing of this particular document that may be using a certain kind of expression it's a kind of literature so when, I, when I'm speaking of a kind of literature, um, in our day, we know that there's poems, we know that there are novels, we know that there is um, historical narratives. Um, we know that there are just, when I pick up a document, um, I need to know what kind of genre is this. This is just a straight email, it's a kind of genre. Or, um, or, this, is, um, uh, or this is symbolic or figurative. They're just kinds of literature we need to know about. Now, biblical literature, some of our major literatures in scripture would be historical narrative. In fact, 60% of the Bible is historical narrative. Um, that's a major genre in scripture. Um, there is also prophetic literature where the writing is a foretelling of the wisdom of God or it's predictive, it's a foretelling. So prophecy has two prongs. It can be foretelling or it can be foretelling and that that's a kind of literature you have poetic literature in the bible you have wisdom literature in the bible you also have um you also have apocalyptic literature that's very vivid symbolic language that is characterized in the book of revelation and the book of daniel and ezekiel it uses this very apocalyptic language that is rather exaggerated to paint a picture um and it's apocalyptic literature is very pictorial and it usually depicts the power and victory of God on behalf of his people. Um, and so when you read the book of Revelation, Jesus is painted in very apocalyptic language. He has hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like bronze. I mean, what is that? I mean, it sounds completely odd, but it's very apocalyptic. Um, so that's a kind of literature as well. So when we look at the Bible, uh, you have also sub uh, genres like parables. You don't have a whole book that's a parable, but it's a subgenre that you do find within certain documents in scripture. So we want to become familiar with the kind of writing this is so that I can bring the right rules of interpretation to that genre. And so that's that's the essence of what genres are. That's good. That's helpful. Um, so three three steps which are often used to describe how we should read the Bible are observation, interpretation, and application. Um, could you take a text of scripture and kind of walk us through how you would use 
those three steps of observation, interpretation, application in reading that particular text? Sure, absolutely. Um, let's take a scripture um, like uh, one of my favorite epistles in the New Testament, it's the book of Ephesians. So let's say I'm reading the book of Ephesians and I've, I've run across Ephesians 1 verse 3, bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And let's say I read that verse and, and I really want to understand it. Well, the first thing I want to do in my observation is I want to know what does it say? I know that sounds overly simplistic, but when I read it, the first thing you want to observe in a text is what does it say? Um, and I want to know, in other words, I want to become familiar with the wording of the text. So an observation, I take the time to read that passage in more than one translation. I probably will read it in about four different translations because I want to understand the flow of the text and I want to get it as close to my kind of language or my contemporary language as I can. So I want to read it in, um, let's say, the New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version. I may even choose the New Living Translation. Three translations that will give me a good feel of what did he say. Then I want to move to observing the context. I want to read it, not only the passages that I've read, but I want to read the whole chapter um, and do the best I can to see if I can get a better sense of what is he saying in the whole chapter. And best case scenario and best practice is read the whole book. Um, so I want to read the book of the, that, I'm re, uh, that I'm studying my text in so that I can see what is the author really saying to this audience. So I get a feel of his message, his emphasis. What is he accenting? What is his concerns? What is he addressing? And so as I read Ephesians, I want to observe that in the six chapters that we read and get a good feel of what the author say. Now, after I've read it, I'm then going to observe the historical context. I'm going to then get probably a Bible encyclopedia, maybe even a Bible handbook. And I'm going to read these documents to help get a good feel of what the book of Ephesians is about by using secondhand material. Now, before I would get into secondhand material, most of what I would observe would be in the text itself. I believe before people get into um, extra biblical sources that they should really spend a lot of time with the text. You'd be surprised how much you can learn about the author and the recipient just by reading the text. Mm -hmm. Then I would get secondhand, uh, secondhand material to get me a, a good feel of the historical context. When was it written? What are the proposed dates? Who's the author? Who's the recipient? What's the occasion of the document? What are the themes of the document? That's, that's getting a good feel of the historical context. So that would be where I spend a lot of time in my observation. I'm observing what does it say, not only the text, but the context, the immediate, and the remote context. I want to get a good feel of this document. Then I'm going to look at my historical context. The other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to locate anything in the passage that may be cultural, that I don't get. Maybe there's something said that I'm not quite familiar with that. I would try to look for things of that nature. Now, I would then move, that's my basic observation. I then move into interpretation. By interpretation, I'm suggesting, is there any words in that passage that I don't understand? I need to now engage a word study. So I want to know what does he mean by blessed? be God. Uh, what does the word blessed mean? I need to look that up to make sure I'm clear about it. Um, is this a verb? Is this something I'm doing in the text? 
or is this something else? Many people would find it interesting that the word blessed in Ephesians 1.3, when he says, blessed be God, is not even a verb. It's an adjective. It's adjectival. It's descriptive of God. To say blessed be God would be the same as saying God is blessed, which means if I praise God or not, does not change that he is blessed. Um, and so when I look up the word blessed, uh, which means praiseworthy, um, eulogatos would be the Greek term here. It's, it's a word that indicates the inherent uh, uh, praiseworthiness of God. So it's actually descriptive. So that's me looking up a word. I don't want to assume I know what blessed means. I'll look it up. Um, and that would be in my English vernacular too. You should do that just in life. If you don't know what a word means, you look it up. So that would be my interpretation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What does spiritual mean? I don't know. The people have a whole lot of different definitions of what is spiritual. Well, I need to look up that word so that I'm clear about it. Um, heavenly places, that's a phrase. Uh, that's really one Greek word, heavenlies. It really translates heavenlies. What does that mean? So anytime I don't know what a word means, I'm now doing interpretation when I'm engaging the process of word study. I observe the text. Now I'm interpreting the text. Now, once I've looked up the words and I know my context and I've observed the text, now I want to start seeing, do I understand what is meant by the author? What is he saying? What is he communicating in light of the historical context I've studied, in light of the themes of the book, in light of what he's saying to the recipients? What do I think he's trying to communicate in this passage? Now I then move to the third step, which is, now that I know what he's saying to them, what is he saying to me? Hmm. I don't want to jump to what he's saying to me unless I first know what he's saying to them. And I want to be able to ascertain what is meant, um, what is Paul trying to communicate to this audience to help give them better insight into whatever his subject matter is. And what do I believe is the possible applications he wants them to do? See, before I start applying it to me, how were they going to apply this text, the original recipients? What were they to do with this information? And then I want to look for what's called corresponding application. Corresponding application then means whatever they were to do with this text, what do I have in common with them? And what do they have in common with me? That would be a corresponding situation so that I can have a stage in which to understand how that passage should be applied. What I don't want to do is try to apply it in a very foreign way. So I want to know what do I have in common with them? What do they have in common with me? Why is Paul giving them this information? What does he want them to do with this information? And then I can say, now, how does this apply to my context? So that's a basic way, a rough way of me explaining how we go from observation to interpretation into application. And I think that's kind of a framework of what you do. Of course, we try to fit a seminary uh, course in about uh, a few minutes, but that would be a basic way that I would go through those three steps. Oh, that's so helpful. And what one of the things that sticks out uh, that you said was, it's like you don't just skip over or just assume that you know something, you know, just because you've heard the word a, a thousand times, you know, you, you lean into what you don't know and you try to figure it out. Yes, um, yes. I love that. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at Discipleship.org. It's our Discipleship.org collective. 
It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple-making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple-makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So for someone who wants help kind of closing the distance between us and the world of the Bible, um, are there any additional resources that you recommend? Any books, apps, software that are just really helpful for the non-scholar who wants to become a better student of the Bible? Oh, yes. Um, I would suggest that people build their library in about four areas. Uh, number one, you should build your library with Bible encyclopedias. Bible encyclopedias um, are basically those books that give insight to uh, events, people, places in the Bible, and books of the Bible. That's what a Bible encyclopedia typically does. Um, it'll give you, and depending on what that encyclopedia is addressing, but normally a general Bible encyclopedia will give you access to uh, people, places, events, um, and overviews of books, overviews of, of, of theological concepts. A good Bible encyclopedia is good to have. Uh, another good book, a set of books to have is uh, Bible handbooks. Bible handbooks are dedicated to giving you overviews of books of the Bible. That is their emphasis. So if I want to know more about Ephesians, Galatians, or 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, or, or Genesis, or Exodus, or whatever it is, uh, Bible handbooks help me to get insight into an overview of that book. So if I want to know more about the recipient, if I want to know more about the author, if I want to know the proposed dates, um, and I underscore proposed because dating is, is an interesting game, um, uh, proposed dates or themes or what is the occasion, what is the critical issues of that text. Bible handbooks typically will take you through that. Um, and then your third set of books that you want to build your library in is commentaries. Commentaries, um, which is a whole subject, um, but there are different kinds of commentaries. You have critical commentaries, language commentaries, uh, expositional commentaries. You have application commentaries. Uh, you want to build your library with a variety of commentaries that can help give insight. Commentaries do not replace reading the Bible. They do not replace wrestling with the text for yourself. You should already have been saturated in the text before you ever get to a commentary. Um, and so that's important to, to know. And then um, third, uh, fourthly, you want to build your library with lexicons. Lexicons are good for people who do not know the original languages, need to get insight into the original languages. Lexicon is a fancy way of saying a dictionary of words. It's just for you. Lexicon approaches those languages I mentioned earlier of Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew. Um, these lexicons will help give you insight into word meanings. Um, also, Bible softwares, there are several out there that can help you, and they can help those who are not scholars. Uh, Logos Bible software that I'm very, I'm very familiar with and affiliated with uh, has various packages that help people get insight into good biblical study, and you don't have to be a scholar to do it. 
I believe Word Search has just been acquired by Logos Bible Software. So it's all one company now. Um, there is also um, websites like, um, uh, oh boy, oh, I slipped my mind just that quick. Um, Bible Gateway. Bible Gateway is a is a website that is good to use. Uh, Blue Letter Bible is another website that is good that will help you get very quick insight and information into word studies, commentaries. A lot of this is located right in the website. So these, those are some tools I would suggest to explore for those who are, who are non-scholars um, and who are just like, hey, I just want some quick insight. Yeah, that's cool. Now, the concept of a study Bible, are, are there any study Bibles that oh, you yeah. can use that you can recommend? Because so, sometimes those can kind of take some of those yeah. insights in a commentary or, or yeah. Bible hand or whatever and, and put them into the Bible. Is there one or two of those that you've uh, gotten a lot out of? Um, I, I find that there's several. I, I'm going to say offhand there's really good study Bibles out there. Um, uh, the English Standard Version Study Bible has been a really good study Bible. Um, I love the scholarship that's been put into that, which combines a lot of what I just mentioned. A study Bible can give you all of those insights into an overview of the book. It can also include commentary. It also includes some good geography if you wanted to get familiar with the landscape of the Bible world. Um, so a good study Bible would be great. I use the ESV. There's also a NIV background, um, NIV background study Bible where it gives you insight into the culture and it gets you into a lot of the aspects of their living and it gives you a lot of background information on some of their practices and the background to some of the passages so that is another good so i i would i would explore various study bibles um, because there are many good ones on the market that are provided in fact one of my uh I've met him before. He's a great author that I love. Tony Evans just came out with a study Bible that um, I haven't had a chance to go through all of it, but uh, he, he, I know he's a very prolific writer and does very well. Um, D.A. Carson has a study Bible out who I recommend highly. D.A. Carson is a great, great scholar who I find to uh, do great work in linguistics, and he has a study Bible out as well. So I would say explore as many study Bibles as you can because they're great tools for study. Hmm. Very cool. Now, I've, I've gotten to hear you preach some, and as a preacher, uh, you seem to, you know, not just tell people what, uh, you know, the Bible passage means, but you also seem to kind of tell them in such a way that they could kind of adopt some of those practices. And so I was just curious, how, how are you able to preach in such a way that each week you're, you're kind of giving some teaching as well as to how to handle the Bible so that people are able to then, you know, figure out how to interpret the Bible well on their own? Yeah, I try to, when I'm preaching, I try to help people not only hear what the Bible teaches, but how you arrive at conclusion. Um, so I try to, uh, and you know, it's my unique way of trying to bring um, some level of academics to the pulpit without being overbearing, because I think you can overbear people with academics. But I do think that we're living in a time and a generation that is inquisitive enough to want to know not just what does it teach, but how did you get there? How did you arrive at that conclusion? So every week I preach, uh, the congregation where I preach knows that I'm going to do the very best I can to put that passage in a context, help them understand the words of that text and help them understand how we get to conclusion in a way that's not overbearing. So I think 
Uh, I think it's important for preachers to consider that, seeing that we live in the age of information, where people now, uh, you know, while you're preaching, they're on a Bible app. They could just press the word and find out what the Greek text is on that and never been to school for Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. And they, they become technological scholars in that they can just press a button and they want to know and they want to be sure that you're feeding them what's correct. And people, we're living in an age now where people can know whether or not you're accurate. Mm -hmm. So you want to be sure that when you go to the pulpit, you go to the pulpit in a way that's responsible. Yeah, oh, that's good. Um, so you have dedicated your life to understanding and teaching the Bible. Uh, when did you personally discover that the Bible was worth spending your life trying to understand and teach? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think I got serious about the Bible. I, I realized when I was a Methodist that uh, the Bible was worth studying. I just didn't know how to study. And um, I became intrigued by the power of Scripture and the practicality of scripture what i didn't know yet was the authenticity of scripture but i was very very impressed with the practicality of it um when i when i got converted um to christianity new testament christianity it was then that i realized the bible needed to be properly handled and at that moment i became very serious about becoming a student of scripture and one of the first things I did as a student of scripture was I spent a significant amount of time putting scripture to memory. Um, and I spent time getting to know the Bible, to be able to cite it. And so I would study six hours a day uh, prior to being in any school, prior to being in any, uh, uh, any academic setting. Um, when I got converted, I studied six hours a day to just become familiar with the content. And so that's when I that's when I can recall my seriousness kicking in. Mm -hmm. um, when I got I converted to New Testament Christianity and I realized the Bible needed to be properly handled, I spent a lot of time um, putting it to memory. I didn't know much about how to interpret it and things of that nature. So I, I, I got a lot of books um, from Sunset School of Preaching, uh, ordered a lot of their material and read their study guides and just let them take me through an understanding of, of the Bible. So that I would think that's when I would pinpoint my seriousness of scripture um, was when I got converted to New Testament Christianity, I realized the necessity of accurately handling the word of God. Yeah, very cool. Um, so one, one more question. Um, this last year has been a very difficult year for a lot of people. Uh, 2020 has been kind of nightmarish for a lot of people. And has there been a scripture that has really been a lifeline for you that you kind of have have reached out to and, and hung on to is like this, this is I've, I've really needed this yeah i think the scripture that probably has been most uh impactful to me in pandemic um has well, really two so one of them is um acts 8 verse 1 through 3 which is a which is an odd text to use as encouragement but that text says when persecution hit the church um through the activity of saul they went everywhere preaching the word the reason that text resonated with me was because the church was not as active in spreading they were all jerusalem located and when persecution hit it was only because of the difficulty of the pressure of persecution 
that they were mobilized into a deeper sense of their mission in spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. I really believe that the pandemic has forced us to have a deeper sense of mission because in a moment in time, God closed down buildings, he closed down programs, he closed down events, and the only thing that mattered was the spreading of the word of God. And so Acts 8 became that text that was a reminder to me that God can use crisis to make the church spread into areas it would have never gone before. There was a time when it was anathema, when we talked about tele-evangelists. And in a moment, everybody is a tele-evangelist. The church moved to where there was 4.6 billion people, and that is online. And it was like God dispatched the whole church worldwide into a into the place where the harvest is located. Mm. But would we have ever been this saturated in social media had there not been a COVID-19? Mm. Every church that I know of was forced into a predicament where they had to leave their proverbial Jerusalem and they had to go to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's one verse that impacted. Wow. Romans 8 was the other text, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And in that text, I am impacted by the doctrine of providence, that nothing is ever outside of the scope of God's control, and that the suffering we experience, God can use it to further his purpose. And so those two passages have become those verses that impacted me during this uh, COVID-19 season. Brother, this has been so, so encouraging for me. I thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Wasn't that great? I just found that super helpful. Yeah. What were, what were some of the most helpful highlights that you uh, took out of that, uh, in that conversation? Well, there are three things I liked a whole lot. And the first one was when he said, don't treat scripture like a political ad, which takes sound bites out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a, an interview recently with a pastor who said someone had given him a little sign that said, I can do all, th- I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so um, that we wanted, we want to read, you know, he's encouraged us to read chapters of the whole book so we can get things into context. And in that same vein of thought, my probably my favorite sentence was, you cannot make scripture mean what it never meant. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea that we can know, you know, the authorial intent. And then I was encouraged that he told us not to be intimidated by the idea of interpreting scripture because we're already doing interpretation all day long. We interpret texts. We interpret emails, we interpret articles we read and videos we watch, and we read editorials uh, differently than we read the comics, and we read a poem differently than we read a novel. So we're already doing it. So we just need to be sure that we're equipped um, and aware that we're, we can do this with God's word. And then the most practical thing I think that he shared was just those three steps, observation, interpretation, and application. And that's accessible um, through the Holy Spirit and some really good tools, we can all do that. Yeah, that's so good. And we tend to just jump straight to application, often taking things out of context, just asking, what does it mean to me? But 
if we really slow down, uh, there's there's a feast there. It's it's more fun this way, and it's obviously more uh, more accurate to the to the text. Um, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Um, if you have any questions for us, uh, anything we can help with, please put it in the chat. This is a good time to do that. They'll text us the questions that you send, and we will uh, we'll try to uh, tackle those questions. So um, in this cultural moment, when there's just a lot of skepticism toward the Bible, there's a lot of cynicism toward the church right now. Um, why do we trust the Bible in the first place? What, why is that our authority when often it kind of could get us into some trouble uh, with the culture? Yeah, I love this question. Um, I, I found this amazing little pamphlet on the question of biblical authority. It was written by John Stott about 40 years ago. And he asked that very question, why should people believe that the Bible is God's written word inspired by his spirit and authoritative over their lives? And he said, basically, the overriding reason for accepting the divine inspiration and authority of scripture is loyalty to Jesus, period. Mm. We believe in Jesus. If he is who he says he is, if he really is God in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins, raised from the dead, then what he thinks about scripture, we have to think about scripture. And Stott breaks it down really helpfully into um, what Jesus thought about the Old Testament and how he made provision for the writing of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So can I tell you a little bit about that? Yeah, please. Because this is really good. I love what he said. Um, he points out like in Matthew 5 and in John 10, how Jesus had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He said, um, indeed, heaven and earth uh, will pass away, but not an iota, not a dot would pass away from God's word until all was fulfilled. And then um, he also said scripture cannot be broken. And in Matthew 19, he says it, that um, in Genesis, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But when you go back to Genesis 2.24, you discover that all is mentioned um, is that the human but inspired author of Genesis wrote that. Mm -hmm. So to Jesus, what scripture says, God says. And that's very compelling because interestingly, we like to toss the Old Testament out, right? Like we don't like the Old Testament all that much. God seems kind of angry and mad and we want to just set that aside. We want the God of the New Testament, but it's all the same God. And Jesus said, what's written there, that's God's words. And so that was that's really just a, an excellent, clearly articulated point from that pamphlet. And then he said Jesus foresaw the writing of the New Testament scriptures and, and authorizing his apostles. Now, this was a new thought to me when I was reading this. But um, apostle was the title Jesus chose for the 12 to indicate their role in Luke 6 and to send them out to preach in Mark 3. This title carried the connotations of the Old Testament prophet as one who sent, as well as the connotation of the Aramaic word shaliach, which was a teacher sent out by the Sanhedrin to instruct the Jews of the dispersion. So this, this teacher sent out by the Sanhedrin carries the authority of the people he's representing. And mm -hmm. the first person we see in the Torah um, who carries this authority is Eleazar, whom Abraham commissioned to find a wife for his son Isaac. So when Rebekah is selected and betrothed as a wife for Isaac by Eleazar, she was legally Isaac's wife without her actual husband 
having ever set eyes on her or having exchanged a single word with her. Mm-hmm. So in the words of the Talmud, a person's shaliyah is as he himself. So the apostles were chosen by Jesus personally. They were commissioned and authorized by Jesus. They were with him. They were sent out to preach and they were given special inspiration by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised the the apostles that the spirit would remind them of everything Jesus had said to them and teach them many things that were too hard for them to bear at the time. So in these ways, he made a preparation for the writing of the New Testament. And And the early church understood this. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. We see in Acts 2. And when the time came to settle the canon of the New Testament, the supreme question about every book was whether it possessed apostolic authority. So what Jesus believes about the Bible, we have to believe about the Bible. This is not a democracy where we're voting on the scriptures we like the best. Jesus says this is this is God's authoritative word. Yeah, that's, that's so good. Uh, the other day I was listening to a podcast that was a theology podcast and someone was being interviewed who was a theologian and uh, she She's kind of a, more of a uh, progressive theologian. And uh, here's what she said kind of in defense of the way that she changes the Bible to kind of fit more cultural trends. Um, she says, uh, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, but I say, and then, you know, gives a, obviously we would consider it a fuller interpretation, like a, a more accurate interpretation, um, you know, but, but, definitely changed perspectives on it. Um, So she says, okay, Jesus did that. That was his way of handling the Old Testament. Uh, So therefore, that's just what I'm doing as well. (laughs) Right. So she's equal to Jesus. (laughs) Now she can. Yeah. Yeah. Interpret the Old Testament and explain it. That's it's so arrogant to me. It makes me really angry. Incredibly arrogant. Uh, <laughs> I was, I've been reading a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, I believe is his name. And he talks about two different views of the world um, that, you know, more of a, uh, a reality centered view of the world. Okay, reality is already there. My job is to try to, you know, organize my life around reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you just think of like a farmer, uh, they don't plant anytime they feel like it, they plan around when it's going to best, you know, help the crops to grow versus a view of the world, which is I create my reality. I create reality. And that's a very, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche way of looking at the world. Um, it's, it's actually a very atheistic view of the world that uh, there's no God, there's no set right and wrong. There's no true and false. I create that myself. And in this book, the rise and, the, and triumph of the modern self, um, talks about how we've made this huge cultural shift from a reality-centered view of the world, where I'm going to try to uh, base my life on what's, what's actually there, um, and we, we've totally shifted to, I create my own reality, um, and technology, you know, social media, we can kind of create a lot of our own reality, or at least the perception of it. So um, anyway, I, I thought that was a helpful way of looking at it. Um, so when it comes to progressive uh, winds that are blowing and, and trying to uh, get us to reinterpret the Bible in ways that fit cultural sensibilities. Um, how do you feel about that? What, what's your advice to somebody who's being very tempted to reinterpret scripture in a progressive way that gets along well with the, the current progressive cultural narrative? What's your advice? 
with that person. Okay. Well, first of all, um, a progressive view of the world that that says, you know, we can create our own reality. It's my perspective. You know, if, if they went to the bank and the bank told them they had $10 in their bank account, I bet they wouldn't like that, that uh, subjective view of reality. You know, it's a pick and choose, you know, it's pick and choose. So mm -hmm. they're doing, they're doing what every culture is tempted to do. People in every culture are tempted to set aside teachings we don't like and say they don't mean what they, what they meant to the original readers to say, we know better now we're, we're, you know, we're just more enlightened. It's really a very arrogant point of view at, at its heart, but everybody's tempted to do it. So, you know, the Middle East finds teachings on um, forgiveness and reconciliation offensive. Like you're not honoring your family if you forgive your enemies. Mm -hmm. So they don't have any problem with the sex ethic of scripture. That makes sense to them. But but forgiveness and, and that, that radical reconciliation that we, that we get in the story of the gospel, not so much. But we here in America, we have different issues. We don't like teachings on gender. We don't like the sex ethic that we're seeing in scripture. And so we're really tempted, you know, to just, mm, that can't really mean what it says. And um, again, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we have to view scripture as he did. And it's the words of God. And if I'm, if I can just do an evolved interpretation of scripture that fits my life, then the Bible is no more than a self-help book. Like, why mm -hmm. would I dig in and use all those tools Orpheus was talking about? You know, like I can just pluck out things to live my best life and like move on. So mm -hmm. something I encourage people to do is um, be aware of what you think about, how you feel and what you do. So I think we have a little bit too high view of ourselves. We think that we can filter through all of the um, things we're meditating on. And you're like, Renee, I don't do all that much meditation. Well, do you listen to music? Do you watch Netflix? Do you read the news or listen to news on the radio or on podcasts? That stuff, that stuff takes seed and takes root in your heart. Um, it's not a neutral activity just to do that. And, and then our feelings, yes, are given by God to give us good information, but our hearts are deceitful. And so you can't always trust how you feel. And so when I come up against something in scripture that makes me feel kind of yuck and I don't like, instantly I should be thinking, what's wrong with me that I don't like what I'm reading that God's revealed to me? Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll, maybe it's just deeper understanding I need, or maybe I need to submit to what I'm what I'm reading, which leads me to the third thing, what you do. One of the worst things you can do is to just study scripture and never actually put it into practice. I think it's actually more harmful because you, you get like your heart gets hardened to the mm -hmm. truth. And, um, and then you can stop hearing like the prompting of the spirit. So I put it like this. Um, when you go swimming, when you send your child to like the public pool to go swimming, do you want the lifeguard who's like read about swimming? Or do you want the lifeguard who's actually like been in the water and knows like life-saving techniques swimming? Mm -hmm. You want the lifeguard who knows how to swim. And so that's, that's how we submit. We watch what we think about, we watch our feelings and just know that they're suspect and then watch what we do. And you'll, you'll be on the path to kind of pulling those cultural blinders away from you. Does that make sense? Yeah.
That's really good. Could you summarize that just one more time? You, the, the three steps that you kind of go through again, what, just real quick, what were those three again? So beware of what you think about, what you're meditating on. Beware of how you're feeling and beware of what you do. Yeah. Because what you think about, how you feel and what you do are going to affect your ability to know the truth mm -hmm. and to live out the truth. So if you just feast on The Bachelor and Game of Thrones and secular music, and then you crack your Bible open for five, 10 minutes in the morning, I can tell you what's going to get a hold of your heart. Mm -hmm. It's not God's word. It's just yeah. not. We're like, we're sinful. We sin is like sugar. You don't have to introduce sugar 10 times to a baby, to a little toddler. They love sugar the very first time you introduce it. We're bent towards sin. We got to give ourselves a taste for the holy. And that comes, that comes with mindfulness. That comes with intentional time in the word with moderating what you're letting get into your mind and your heart. Mm -hmm. And then you'll find like, Ooh, I'm, I actually am growing in my, like, I want that broccoli. <laughs> I don't want that soda. I don't want that, that sugar. I want something that's going to make that's, that's feeding my soul. That's connecting me to the God of the universe. But it doesn't come, I mean, it doesn't come naturally. And I think we just think, well, you know, there's just maybe that that's an old book and maybe that doesn't really apply today or we're going to just reinterpret this just like Jesus did. Ah, that's terrible. <laughs> that's helpful, Renee. Um, so in our, in closing, I just want to point people to the website, renew.org. If you would like to learn uh, more of what Orpheus, uh, Dr. Hayward has said, um, we actually have articles uh, based on this particular conversation um, that really unpacks these um, these processes for for reading and interpreting the Bible. So we have an, an article by Dr. Hayward on it's called a three step process for reading the Bible it goes through, uh, you know, observation, interpretation, application. Uh, we have one called come to the Bible with questions, uh, which, you know, what questions should you bring to the text? Uh, we have an article by him called Bible Interpretation is Closer Than You Think, uh, talking about the, the different ways we already use interpretive uh, tools every day anyway. Um, so really helpful stuff. If you liked what you, uh, what you heard and want to apply some of that to uh, your Bible reading or how you're teaching other people to read the Bible, I'd highly recommend check out Renew.org and, and, and look up in the contributors, look up Orpheus Hayward, and you'll see all of those articles there. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this has been fun. Renee, thank you. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode, y'all. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that it blessed you in the way that it blessed me. And if you are liking what you're hearing on this podcast, I would love it if you would click the subscribe button wherever it is that you get your podcast so that you can be a part of the Disciple Makers Podcast family, be a part of my crew, and that you can stay up to date each time I release a new episode each week. All right, guys. And one last thing. Don't forget November 4th and 5th, the National Disciple Making Forum in Nashville, Tennessee. You can purchase tickets at discipleship.org today. So go do that. Don't wait. All right. See you next time. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.